everybody. Hi. Hey, I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we're back for episode 43 of AB Testing. We are back after a break. I apologize again for the audio yuckiness in the last episode. Hopefully it is better this time. I have upgraded some equipment to try and make it Brent proof. Uh, that implies that the audio yuckiness was uh, due to me. Well, some of it was. And I believe it was your channel that went offline. We had we had multiple issues. Multiple issues. When you try and take my little weak signal and amplify it, I end up amplifying some of Brent's microphone stand fondling. And I have, I have fondle-proofed the microphones. And the Darth Vaderism. That's what bothered me the most. I'm like, wow, I really should go check out my breathing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, hopefully this one is better. So, what's new with you, Brent? I have just come back from Kauai. Nice. It was. Oh. Have you been? To uh, I've been to Maui. Okay. I've been to Kauai. There's, unless you're an outdoorsy guy, there's not much to do in Kauai. Sounds fun to me. We're not outdoorsy people. Oh. <laughs> but there are beaches in Kauai, and we are definitely beach people. I spent at least 50% of my time in the ocean. Um, and my, my favorite story was... I but was Brent, out, you're as pale as ever, so you must have had some I good I am sunscreen. not as pale as ever. Slightly less pale. I am golden brown and delicious. Um, the... My best story is I was out snorkeling with my younger son, 14. Uh, this is only his second time ever he's been snorkeling. And the first time he was like eight and the, the waves were pushing him around. Um, this time I was following him as a good father, paying attention to his son, and suddenly he just starts freaking out. So father syndrome kicks in going, ah, oh, crap, I'm gonna have to punch a shark in the nose or some bullshit. And he was actually freaking, he starts pointing, and he was swimming right next to a giant sea turtle. Oh, that's cool. That's and way cooler than punching a shark in the nose. It would, surviving punching a shark in the, in the nose would probably be a much better story in an EB podcast. But as we kept on swimming, we, we discovered we were actually stuck in, I don't know what you call a group of them, but a swarm of sea turtles. There was like 10 of them. And... Um, that rocks. It did rock. The just to just to amp up the drama just a little bit. You're not allowed to touch the turtles. It, it, they're an endangered species, and touching them equals bad. Um, but so it was a real challenge uh, when you're stuck in a swarm of these things, battling the waves, and making sure because the waves kept on pushing me towards the sea turtles. And anyway, there you go. Very cool. Very it was cool. fun. Nothing new with me, but there's something new with A-B testing for, for episode 43. Something brand new. So we have a sponsor for episode number 43. My good friends at Star West asked if I'd give a plug for their upcoming conference, and I'm going to do it because if you look at all the conference talks I've done over the years... One conference I've done way more than any are the Star Conferences. And in fact, I've probably been to more Star West conferences than any others. Huge fan of Lee Copeland. Helps put together that conference. Uh, I just enjoy the crap out of it. And I make, I'm not, obviously not doing this Star West, but I'm trying to get back down there again because I, I kind of like 
going to the conference near Disneyland. It's kind of a lot of fun. Is it in LA? It's in Anaheim. It's in the, it's actually, I didn't look up the hotel. It's usually every time I've gone, it's been in the Disneyland hotel. This is, as far as speaking goes, I've enjoyed it and I encourage A-B testing people to go. If you're looking for a conference to go to, looking for a way to connect with testers. The talks, there's a couple of great keynotes. Jason Arbin from Applause. Do you ever meet Jason? No. Jason helped James Whitaker write the book that was a ripoff of my book, the How Google Test Software book. Oh. <laughs> so he's at Applause, but he is a real, he's a really smart guy, does a great job. Um, Jeff Morgan, also awesome. Tons of track speakers. And what I encourage people that go to these conferences to do is is you get so you get some value in learning and ideas from the speakers. It's not like you're going to get every single word said or things you're going to take home and apply directly, but you're going to, you're going to find nuggets, dozens, if not hundreds of nuggets. But some of the best learning happens at these conferences for me and for pretty much everyone I've talked to is in just talking with other people at the conference and getting a chance to, you know, talk to some of the speakers, uh, one-on-one after their talk in the hallway at lunch at the pub whatever it's a great way to learn so that's where i get the value out of conferences is from just talking to people and learning from each other so i have not ever been to any of the stars um back when whitaker was uh, a prominent keynote speaker He's invited me a couple times to Star East, but it never was convenient for me to go all the way to Florida. Getting knowledge around current techniques. Um, I have seen, particularly Lee is, is, of the leaders of these conferences that I have visibility to, Lee is paying attention to uh, the data movement, the agile movement, and he's not fighting against it. Absolutely not. And there are... Again, you need to take everything with a critical eye. Every, everything you learn, whether it's from a conference, from a book, from an article, from a blog, from Twitter, you need to apply critical. Critical thinking is how you decide what's worth learning versus what's not learning. So you need to apply that always. Don't, blind faith or blind like, oh, what you said must be true is a recipe for disaster. So that's with that caveat in mind. Uh, so Star West is I'll give a little plug now, now that Brent is totally taking us off the rails. But Star West is, I think, one of the longest-running test conferences out there. And this year, it's in October, October 2nd through 7th. It's in Anaheim. I'm going to assume Disneyland Hotel, although I did not look that up. There are, like, over 100 sessions. They One thing about Star is they run massive concurrent tracks, so you can always find something. And one thing I encourage, and Lee will encourage you to do as well, is if you go to a talk and it ends up not being what you want, it's okay to leave. Don't throw up your arms and go, ugh, and leave. But it's okay to go check one out. And sometimes if there are one or two or three talks I want to see all at the same time, I will plan to rotate through them, try, to try and get the best knowledge I can. So there is great information and everything from test automation. There's a bunch of stuff on agile testing, perf testing, leadership, etc. Tons of junk. And then I mentioned networking as the way to learn. And they have in their expo, they have a bunch of exhibitors, I think like 50. You can speak one-on-one with the speakers and get some free consulting. Even more, there's a full day uh, session on um, a bonus session, Women Who Test, which I think is really cool. 
and a great way to another great networking opportunity for women who test. Hey, Brent, it it gets even better. So AB testers, if you want to go to the conference, do you like to save money? Who doesn't like to save money? I love saving money. So if you, you can believe it or not, and not may be applicable, but if you go to the Star West site and you sign up for the conference and you want $200 off, just enter the promo code ABTESTING. I've, I've never had my, I don't think I've ever had my own promo code before. Me neither. It fills me with glee. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll post a link. Um, it's well.tc wax star west AB. I'll post a link to that, and I encourage uh, AB testers who looking for a conference to go to to attend. And I have confirmed that it is at the Disneyland Hotel. Yeah, I, I didn't want to make an assumption, but thank you for confirming that. It is at the Disneyland Hotel. I'm really not going to try and edit that in. Great conference. AB testers can find some value there and use that discount code to save you or your employer a few bucks. What's the discount code again? AB testing. All one word. You know what that's worth? $200. $200 off. Sweet. Thank you, Star West. All right, man. Thank you for our our first and potentially our last ever sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. So um, our good friend, uh, I wouldn't call him a good friend because I don't know if we have any good friends, but our one of the three, Danny Fott. Yep. Software Alchemist posted just this morning, last night. I just saw the post today. So did I. And, and I wanted to talk about a few things in the post because he gave us a shout out. And the post is about the demise, the, the fadingness, what is it called, of black box testing? Brent's learning how to operate his mechanical uh, electronic device here. The name of the post, the black box tester role may be fading away. And we could have a long discussion about the truth and non-truth of that. Um, I think it's definitely true in some ways and not in others. Uh, for example, on you know, I am not a black box tester. I do a bunch of different things, but I employ black box testers. I was trying to think through the last time I had a black box tester as an, as an employee. Yeah, and these are um, vendor positions. And it might be measured in decades. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know that all teams would need a black box tester. I think I think it'd be again a long discussion. Happy to have it. Maybe not today. Because what we really want to get to is Danny gives us a little bit of a shout out. Yes. And so can you read what Danny says? Yes, and thanks, Danny, for the shout out. Um yeah. Of what, course. Thank what you. Danny says is, I have been following Microsoft employees, Alan Page and Brent Jensen, on their AB podcast. That, that's AB us. testing podcast. They have had fairly traditional testing roles and are now in roles that seem much more future proof. Brent is now a data scientist, specifically principal data scientist manager. Alan, principal software engineer, describes himself as a helper doing odd but challenging tasks that don't easily fit the developer roles on his team, which is something that appeals to me, Danny. Uh, Both are still involved in the testing process. The project structures they describe seem to be on the leading edge of the future of the software testing role. 
in my limited view of the software industry, I don't see many companies that are anywhere near Microsoft in their evolution. If the traditional black box tester role is fading, I think it's going to happen very slowly. I think it will require a very broad view of the industry to track a slow evolution like this. And I'm curious if you've heard from anyone who is in a good position to see it. Danny does have a caveat there. He says, in his limited view of the industry. I think Danny actually has a fairly non-limited view of the industry. Yet, uh, I'm going to say it right here. I'm, gl I'm glad you think that, my, that Brent and I are on the leading edge of the future. I'm, I'm going to get the words wrong here. But I don't think Microsoft is anywhere near the forefront on how unified engineering or how, how to function in an org without black box testers. No, I, <clears throat> I, I, my org is because I'm awesome, but Microsoft as a whole, no, even I have a ways to go, I think. I would say, like, us being on the Microsoft being on the leading edge here. Um, when I read that in his post, it, it kind of took me aback a bit. Uh, Alan and I have been talking on this topic in various different communities for, it seems like, five years now. Okay, for the record, I don't think you have to drink for that one. That was well put. Thank you. All right, go on. <laughs> and when we first started talking about this, we, much like I think Danny is doing referencing us, we were talking about other companies that we were um, aware of that were pushing the, the boundaries and leading uh, this edge. Like when, like we've talked about, I'll go ahead and drink. He's drinking coffee, for the record. Yeah. Um, Make-believe Irish. Um, we've talked about it on the podcast that, that not all of Microsoft has, has really moved towards this transition. Although, I, except for vendors, like I, I can't think of a single team that employs a full-time black box tester oh, no, here absolutely. at Microsoft. I'm 99.99% positive that they don't exist at Microsoft. I would tend to agree. And if they do, it's, it's, it's an extremely rare context-sensitive situation. Um, so when, when Microsoft gets accused of the leading edge, like what happens to me is I go, but we're so far behind. Yeah, that's the way I feel too. I see... A lot of companies really better at this, better at doing, like I'm trying to work my team, for example, towards continuous deployment. Yep. Which requires such a high level of daily quality that we, that, and I know plenty of other companies do this, plenty of other companies bigger than, and, and with more baggage in some cases than uh, what my team has, but they're able to pull that off. They've made it farther than I, I I'm still feel like I'm chasing where I think we need to be to be a good 21st century software engineering team. I do, I, I spent some time thinking about why do I feel this way? And we've heard from other of the three around um, things like, oh, we, uh, we are isolated, Microsoft environment isn't like everybody else, right? And, and that may in fact be true. The thing that, as I was thinking through about what could 
be the difference between my perception and say Danny's uh, or, or other listeners' perception. And one of them I thought about is all the companies that I know of that, that don't employ testers, the vast majority of them never had testers to begin with. Absolutely true. So it's it's and, and it's very possible we're leading on the executing this transition. Yes. And that's actually a good way to put that. Nice insight there, Brent, because I think that the transition is something that we've struggled with and sometimes done well, sometimes done poorly, but it's that transition that's really hard. And to be clear for any first-time listeners who haven't heard this before, <laughs> nothing to drink. Uh, <laughs> These companies that don't have testers or teams nice that don't have testers, the they still, guaranteed, still have people focusing on quality or focusing on testing activities. Those things still happen. Yeah. So I, I don't want anyone... I Every time we say no testers, I feel like I have to remind people that means it doesn't mean no testing. It That is correct. Like... Um, and we're, we're proponents of it on the, the podcast. There is a new balance that you need to strike in terms of preventative care of your software. Um, and in my humble opinion, it's just simply more productive and more efficient to have the testing tasks accomplished by a specializing generalist mm-hmm. versus a a single individual whose whose sole duty is to be paid to do that testing. Yeah, I agree. I think, and Danny talks in that article about, uh, and even he references Kem Kaner's article talking about the need to pick up some programming skills or some doesn't be programming. It could be technical skills. I'm looking for someone for my team, not necessarily to do programming, but someone who is a wizard with uh, configuring websites and deployments and Azure site management, et cetera, et cetera. And it's technical. It's not coding necessarily, but it's critical to have. And those people that can do that and can keep an eye on quality, I think they're as good as gold. You You can stay employed if you have a breadth of skills. The one thing that that Danny has talked about that I do um, think is, so I got a LinkedIn message from one of our listeners in India. You want to take a stab at the name? Looks like a Polish name. Uh, Ewa, it could be Eva with a W, Barzakowska. We'll go with that. Working in India. Yep. Barzikoska. Bar- yeah, I think that's right. And uh, she sent me a a LinkedIn connection invite thingy. Okay. Um, a linker? Yep. And wanted to uh, be able to ask questions, but in in her last message, sent, uh, sent the following. Hey, Brent. You know, one thing I really liked that I had not had enough characters in the invite to express is that you guys are still learning. One of you mentioned taking a MOOC in analytics. Do you know what that is? No. Master of 
occupational crime. Yep. Um, I'm learning to code right now, and from time to time, I also take MOOCs and find it really encouraging to hear that people who are already established in their industry spend their free time learning new things to stay relevant. What if OC is online course? It might be. Something, because do, I do, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not always doing one, but I frequently do online courses in things I just need to know more about to feel relevant. But uh, to hijack the, the thread here, the Well, no, actually, I got minute. to the, the, then she goes on to I'm, discuss I'm how often the podcast or awesome the podcast is. Um, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> so thank you for the feedback. Um, <clears throat> so, but the the point that that Danny and Eva Eva Ewa um, called out is no, who, who by the way no longer likes the podcast <laughs> given our butchering of the name yeah I thanks hugely apologize for that is um, it's really important to have a sense of what you need to grow into yeah and so first off the easy part is if you're in your job and you think I'm pretty good at this I'll just keep doing this no need to learn anything else uh, either at best uh, career stagnation, but at worst career limiting or more likely career limiting. But there's that challenge of what should I learn and how much of it should I learn? And that's a contextual and an experienced thing. I read this book maybe as long as 20 years ago. I think it was on management or leadership. And one of the things it suggested is that you should always look for ways to learn, like read you know, it gave examples of magazines, like, and don't worry if they're not in your field because you'll pull ideas from them. That breadth will allow you to connect things in the way that Steven Johnson in uh, Where Good Ideas Come From talks about that network effect. And so for about five years, I subscribed to this little 12 page magazine called Science News, which it came every week or every two weeks. It was the most fascinating thing in the world. Nothing to do with testing, nothing to do with software engineering, uh, occasionally about technology. But it was, uh, imagine like scientists doing active research could publish, not in the boring academic way, but meant for uh, people like me to read um, articles on their research uh, uh, every couple of weeks. It was a great outlet for them, I imagine. But just, it was some of the best advice I'd ever been given through a book in my life. But I learned just enough. It just, it, it tickled my brain enough to make me want, you know, to give me some expansion. But as far as learning, uh, you know, look for online courses. Look for things you, may, you think you need to know more about. Sometimes, I can't remember why, oh, I remember why. When Microsoft was making this move to, uh, towards... Uh, data science and data analysis and business intelligence, I wanted to be ahead of the curve. So the reason I'm able to fire off, okay, Brent always freaks out. Brent is a real data scientist, freaks out when I fire off mathematical terms or data science terms in the right context and, and make them make sense. Uh, and I, I've gotten used to it, but with, I, I would it, say... It, it does freak him out, and it's because... When I he tells him, me he's going to go present how to do A-B testing to a workshop of hundreds of people. And that th freaks me out. And then I, and then I and tell then him what I'm off. doing, and he goes, oh, okay. 
I can, because I, I took the time to go through courses and reading and videos to learn how this stuff works. And then if you want to make sure you know something, the best way to make sure you know it is try and teach it. So if I can, one, it's one thing just to repeat things I've read, but that works great as long as there are never any questions and as long as I can explain it perfectly. But you have to, to teach something, you have to know it well enough to understand the nuance and how to... And the other thing I would add, yeah, you, you should target teaching it and you should target applying it. Yes, that's just, I, 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 that's absolutely true. Right. The, the, um, but, so I, but the reason, I, and I'll finish up here, but the reason I, I learned those things, I, I wanted to know them and I wanted to know them well enough to be able to teach them to other people. I think there's some valuable things in there. Uh, so that's how I figured out how much I had to learn of it. So I could teach it to other people. There's an old phrase, and, and that is the only constant in life is change. And back when I, back in the day when I had my first management job uh, here at Microsoft, it occurred to me pretty quickly that in the software industry, we change uh, much more frequently than most industries I'm aware of. Um, and I discovered very quickly that the people who did best were not those who learned to survive change, but thrived on it. And learning new things, um, getting ideas from other industries. I'll give you a, a recent example of something that I'm working on. I'm, I run a service organization. And I'm busily spending a lot of time reading white papers on healthcare. And the primary reason why is most services have some form or another of signals, um, often referred to as pings or heartbeats, uh, around how well the service is operating. Well. The healthcare industry also spends a lot of time worried about how well heartbeats are operating. And they've done a lot of advances around near real-time analytics. So I'm reading a lot of these white papers and, and mapping several of their efficiency concepts into something that's service-based. Um, it reminds me, one of my bachelor's degree was in math. And one of the things that I, one of the few things that have stuck with my math degree was this concept of a mapping function, where if you, if you knew how to prove something in one environment, but you're in a different environment, <clears throat> you could map from environment B to environment A, do that work, then map it back. It's kind of the same thing with these concepts. Uh, healthcare, yeah, they're worried about real heartbeats, but you can map it uh, to a more technical concept, um, use the same solution. Um, in terms of learning, I would recommend people to uh, not only look for online courses, I would spend 30% of your time just looking for things that are you have no idea if it's going to apply. And then spend a good portion of those things that are something you've never done, but you have a 50% confidence you can actually use it. 
One of the things I got from, I mentioned the science news story earlier, that the little thin magazine. One of the things I got from that was exactly what you're talking about. It's nothing to do, I, nothing to do with software. But every once in a while, I would find something I could map. I wasn't looking for it. I just read it because it was interesting as hell. But I was able to find it tickled some ideas, and it may not even be direct. It may not be like, oh, I can use this plant genome mapping to figure out software. No. But the ideas would tickle something. Mm -hmm. And I think if you want to stay on the edge and you want to really advance your career, and, and, and for me, if I'm not learning, I am just bored as hell. I have to be learning. I have to be learning something new. So I think that's why I'm still employed, even though my degrees are in music. Perhaps. I, I know it's why I am. The last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say on this topic is um, I know what really spawned this for me. You mentioned your, your what was it, science news, mm -hmm. right? Um, for me, uh, what inspired this was really reading two books. Number one. Uh, Green Eggs and Ham? Nope. Nope. Christopher Alexander's book, The Timeless Way of Building, as well as, um, you, you know, the Head First series of books? Yes. The Head First Design Patterns book. That's a very good, I, I that became my favorite book on design patterns. Even if you don't know coding very well, I would recommend the Design Patterns book because what we're talking about, like in my healthcare example and the, the example you just gave, what we're really talking about is universal process design patterns that apply in a context-free uh, fashion. You know, that's a really good example or recommendation for, you know, testers talking about being technical. I better learn to program. I better get, you know, take a course in whatever. But as far as breadth goes and specializing generalists, that head first design patterns book is a maybe a great recommendation is one of the first few books you learn is you want to just start broadening. Yeah. It's, it's really good. I've read the Alexander book as well. And I've even read, have you read the gang of four patterns book? The, I the have the gang of four. I do not recommend reading it, but no, no, I do. Like what if you can't sleep at night and you want to, you want to, it works for that. Yeah, it does. It, exactly. It's great for insomnia. For design patterns, like the way I've, I've, um, you know, you know, Al Shalloway and the, yeah. not, not, okay, he's a buddy of mine. And yeah, um, he and I go to lunch quite often. Um, how come you never invite me to lunch with Al? I'll do it next time. You better. Um, the, purely, the way I tell, purely so I can name drop Al Shalloway too. <laughs> um, the, the way I tell people if they want to dive deep into design patterns and you don't need to, if, if, you know, you're one of the three and you spend most of your time as a black box tester. Just read the head first one. But if you want to go deeper, then pick up Al Shalloway's uh, book, Explaining Design Patterns. Head first design patterns will, will teach you why design patterns are freaking cool. Okay, and In great it, ways. In great ways. With, with examples using pizza and other things. Yeah, and, and what was it? Star Buzz? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the 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 duck thing. Yeah, it is just. It's, it's a great. It's really well done. It's really it really is. Um, and and just as to interrupt there, I've read 
that was the first head first book I read and I've read a few others. They're good, but not as good as the design patterns one. It is the best. I agree with that. Book. But the head first, the head first style. If you have a choice between getting a blah, blah, blah for dummies or the head first, blah, blah, blah. Or, or even the textbook. Get the head first, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. Um, then go look at um, the explaining design patterns. Because what Al does really well in that book is it shows you how to design with design patterns. How There's this fantastic process called uh, CVA, which I'm no longer remembering what the acronym stands for, where it allows you to pick and choose. So let's say you got to connect two components. Do I choose the adapter pattern? Do I choose the bridge pattern? There is a, there is a great process that he goes through and describes around how to pick which design patterns to use. And then the head or the, the, the gang of four book, dear God, never start with that book. That book <laughs> is a reference. This book is, it's like going to the index card section of a library. It tells you what other things exist. So if you going through and you design and you're going, you know, I don't think this pattern fits. That's a good book to use as a reference. And I have, I probably have 10 different books on design patterns in my library in my office. Um, those three are the ones I use the most often. Very cool. Hey, we have just a few minutes left, but I want to make sure that we get to the mailbag. I love mailbag. Who doesn't love mailbag? <laughs> and we've done this before with other people where we've highlighted one person for pretty much the whole show. And today is apparently Danny Fought Day. Because Danny Fought had a question. He asked in our one of the three dot slack dot com channel team. He asked, what do you think of property-based testing tools? And there's an example. I haven't tried one in anger, but from what I've read, these appear to be useful tools for exploratory testing, but are not a substitute for unit tests given their non-determinism. Etc. Etc. What do you think of these? Uh, so the question is really, there's some discussion afterwards in the Slack messages, but really it's Brent's looking at me very confused. Wait, so go back to that lesson. It, they're not suitable for unit tests because of their non-determinism? Why are they, uh, why are they non-deterministic? Not the point. Um, okay. In, uh, there's a, a link in which Dave Thomas makes a somewhat trolly assertion that unit tests are a waste of time and everyone should be using quick check. I said trolly because other comments make it clear he's actually railing against bad unit testing. So his position is probably a bit more nuanced than the statement implies, which is absolutely true. Yep. I, I'm, I also am against bad unit testing. I'm also... I will take a strong stance. So... No, no, wait. I'm going to lay down some controversy. I am 100% against bad testing in all forms. For once, I'm going to agree with you, Brent. <laughs> so... Since the dawn of time, or the dawn of software engineering, uh, there have been companies who strive to not only make our lives easier, but to advertise the crap out of how much easier they've made our lives. Whether it's, in most testers have seen the dozens, if not hundreds, of tools that, that will allow you to automate all your testing without writing any code. 
Here we have an example, not quite as bad as that. We have an example of tools, and Microsoft has had some similar tools, uh, they're part of Visual Studio now, which do some automatic unit testing by looking at the parameters and the contracts and generating a whole bunch of unit tests, different parameters, and finding the bugs for you. Great tools, great tools. They help you find some bugs, some of which may be very obscure and wouldn't be hit. We'll call them edge cases, but as testers, we know the value in fixing the edge cases because when you have a million users, you have a significant portion hitting those edge cases. So all good. But are they a substitute for unit testing? My answer is absolutely no. They are a supplement for unit testing because the value in unit testing, even if you're not doing test-driven development, is it makes you write better, cleaner code in the first place because you have to write code that is testable. And I have trained... You said even if you're not doing TDD, and that's not true. If you're not doing TDD, then you're writing your code and then using this stupid tool to generate... Stupid uh, test. So, <laughs> no, back up. So, not what I'm saying. If you're writing unit tests without doing TDD, I have trained dozens, hundreds of developers in both writing tests with using TDD and writing unit tests without using TDD. Even, now, TDD, we can talk about it. Okay, I will talk about it. Uh, because you have to write your tests first, you consciously think about how that code has to function. Using TDD makes you write more testable, better designed code. But what I've found in experience, even if people don't jump on to TDD and write the unit tests afterwards, once they, in my experience, not everyone, but the majority for sure, even if they know they're going to be writing unit tests, just the fact that they know they're going to be writing unit tests, they write clearer, more concise code than they would have if they knew they weren't going to test it. Or when they go to write that unit test, the first thing they do is go, oh crap, I can't test this. Let me refactor my code and make it more testable. Those things do happen. TDD, in, in my experience, is is the most efficient and best way to get that code that way in the first place. Yep. But for those that won't jump in, I do think that just writing the unit test and having some discipline around that has not equal, but in some cases, similar benefit. One of the questions, I don't know if he had it in this particular response, but one of the questions that popped out, uh, Alan alluded to it, or Lou, Alan they, alluded to I, it. Hey, is unit is, is, I'll call it PBT, a replacement for unit testing? And I'm gonna say, absolutely not. Well, it, duh. And, and the biggest reason, because the, the, so I love tools. Okay, tools simplify our lives. They, they make everything better. But there's one thing that they do that's really bad, and that is they encourage intellectual laziness. So any developer who picks up these tools that go, hey, look, I just generated 3,000 test cases. My unit test suite is done. Get none of the design benefits that you just referred to. Yeah, I think for a lot of things in testing, uh, if you, if there's some sort of dichotomy, it's probably wrong. So does automation replace testers? No. Does it enhance them? Yes. Do, do replace testers? Testers or testing? testing. I mean, testers, testers. Yeah. If you have if you have a bunch of automation, it's we, not the point you're making. So the point is. We look for things, and we don't look. We're told that a tool or something will replace something else. But in most cases in testing or software engineering, the tool merely enhances 
or supplements. In fact, not merely, that's the main benefit. And I think if I could be jump into marketing of testing tools for a while, I want to talk about how they supplement, not replace. These tools we're talking about as far as uh, test generation based on inputs, totally supplements unit tests. If you want to run those, I, I think it's great. I think you'll find a lot more bugs. Yep. You still have to write good unit tests. If if someone pick random Juji Fruit, uh, it's probably too close to some, there's so many names of automation tools, uh, but Juji Fruit Automation Framework, great test automation, don't have to write any code. Is that going to replace my unit test? No. My integration test? No. Is there no use for it all at all? No. Because I may decide like, oh yeah, this is an automation tool. It works at a very high level. May have some false positives, may have some flakiness because you automation, but there may be some, I would guarantee there are some places I could find to use that that would give me some coverage I couldn't do by myself. But it doesn't replace anything I do. But the point is I can use any of these tools to enhance what I'm doing, not to replace things I'm doing. You can. The the thing I still want to sort of rail against is it is not none of these tools. So let, let's talk about it a different way. The benefits of these tools. Okay. So if the goal that you're trying to achieve is a, a checkbox claiming I have a unit test suite. You know what? Test Done. generation tools kick ass at that. If that's the goal you're trying to do, knock yourself out. You're going to have a bunch of tests really rapidly. That's worth a tangent because very quick, I'll just make a point that uh, I love that you bring up the checkbox because so much of what I hear and experience in engineering is about it's lot, there's a lot of checkbox engineering. We don't yeah. need to we don't need to get the benefit of this. We just need to say we've done it. Right. Go and, on. Um. And I do know, uh, particularly in the last five years, as Microsoft has gone through this transition, sort of a bookend of the, the podcast today, um, there are several devs that just like, God damn it, I don't want to think about testing. I just want a tool that just gives me that checkbox, right? Now, if you want to move up the stack and have your code be better maintenance, easier to maintain, then uh, even then, these test generation tools will help you, and you'll, you'll still have to provide a, a, a modest amount of thoughtfulness in order to, to maximize that benefit around the maintenance costs. If you, if you just go, I, uh, just, I'm gonna generate a bunch of test cases, yay, checkbox, well, when that test suite runs, you're going to be stuck into a bunch of maintenance, understanding why this test case is suddenly failing, blah, blah, blah. Um, so even then, so winding up, this can help reduce test maintenance. Now, if you want to go even further and say, hey, I want the code I write have the maximum ROI, which means reusability, the ability to integrate new features on demand, reacting to the marketplace, then you're going to need 70% thoughtfulness and 30% this type of tooling. This is where, again, where TDD comes into play. TDD forces you into that thoughtful design process so that you can construct your code in a way that yields that top tier of benefits that I just mentioned. 
Yeah, I think that's a whole podcast on sort of, I've been thinking about it while you're talking, uh, checkbox engineering versus craftsmanship. I love these tools. The biggest problem, there's a, there's a new catchphrase. Automation is great. Automation allows you to take a lot of these painful things and do them really easy. But the problem with automation is it also allows you to really reduce the friction on delivering on really crappy outcomes. Like now I have a a test suite of a million test cases, all auto-generated, where on any given day, 25% are failing. Oh, God. Yeah. Do the math. That's awful. Yep. All right. We are done. And it looks like my microphone's still recording, so I'm pretty happy. Woohoo! I'll get this edited and out to the people soon. Thanks, everybody. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. We'll see you next time. Yep. Yeah.